0: Today we are going to finish 1 Corinthians 15, the topic or the category, the title is Dealing with the Resurrection. And this is part two, Edwin gave us part one, and if I had a time machine, I would go back and not make myself complete all of chapter 15 in one lesson. And the next lesson we have, I I believe I'm doing all of chapter 16. And I think I wanted to make sure I was done before my sabbatical, or maybe I just typed the wrong thing, or something along those lines. But again, if I had a time machine, I could change it. Well, probably would do some other things with the time machine, Um, but I do not. So we are going to press on and cover this whole chapter today, a little bit review. There are some things that are, you're like, wow, what about that? And we're not going to be able to dive into it as deeply as I would like. But why are we dealing with the resurrection? Well, we know in the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul is writing the church, correcting them and condemning them for a number of false thought processes and sinful choices, whether it's immorality or whether they don't quite understand marriage, how they should, or it's lawsuits where they're suing one another. Paul has heard and now he is writing and responding to hear specifically some false teaching about the resurrection. Some in the church, obviously in the community, because Corinth was a pagan, wicked city, they were saying or claiming that there is no afterlife. There is no afterlife. So you look at verse 32. If I, from human motives, if I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This was one of the truths that God used to drive me to the cross when I was a young child. I just would lay at bed at night and think, what happens when I die? Do I just like sit there in that coffin forever? Like, is it like an eternal bedtime and you can't get out of bed and I would think of that, what, what is there when we die? Well, we know the truth, and if you haven't been to big church, Pastor Tom's going to cover that. There's two realities. You either are raised anew and you live with God forever and perpetual enjoyment, or you reject Christ and you are in hell forever in perpetual torment, And so you either repent and believe in Jesus Christ and you have that new life in him or you reject God and you are punished forever. But some would say that's it. You die, you die. So you better live it up. And that helps you kind of understand the selfishness with which people live with, right? They want to live for as long as they can and do as much of the fun and enjoyable thing because there's no consequences or there's nothing after that. You see in verse 11 of chapter 15, it says, Whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Look, the church though, right, the genuine believers, they believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And since they believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they know that they will be resurrected, that it is real, that it is true. Other false teachings going on was that the, the resurrection of believers had already taken place. Verse 12, now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do you, some of you, among you, say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The, the timing of things, we, we missed it. It already happened. There is no bodily resurrection. If you go to chapter uh, 15, verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, but it is raised an imperishable body. So that whole Greek philosophy that, that you know, the body is bad and the spirit is good. No, we're, we're all bad. We're 100% bad. But we will receive a glorified body one day. Glorified body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Body And so we think of Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, did the disciples recognize him? Well, okay, I know. Technically, in the road to Emmaus, he hid himself from them. But they, they were like, oh, that's Jesus. We know that's Jesus. And so he looked like he did before. But he was, he even ate food, right? But he wasn't bound by certain parameters that are fleshly, earthly body is bound by. But Edwin started out dealing with the resurrection by looking at the validity of the resurrection, the validity of the arguments for. And so we're just going to walk through this real quick. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand. Now, at the end of this chapter, he's going to tell them to be steadfast and immovable. But he starts it with, look, if you're really in Christ, this is what you stand in, the truth and the reality. It is this truth by which you are also saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now he's not saying that they can lose their salvation. What he's saying is, you have made a profession of faith. And if you are really a follower of Jesus, then you will stand firm in this truth and this reality and you will persevere. But if you only made a profession because, you know, you felt guilty or you felt that it would get you somewhere or you just wanted to look good in front of everybody, you're not going to stand because you were never truly in Christ. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised, and on the third day according to the scriptures. Some would describe the death of Jesus as an accident. God failed, or God didn't really know what was going to happen. No, it was his predetermined plan according to the scriptures that he would die, that he would be buried for three days, and that he would raise again. Well, how do we know this? Isn't this everything? If anyone ever stumps you with any apologetic, like, can God make a rock so big that God can't make a rock that big? Which is kind of a dumb thing, right? Just say, what are you going to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What do you mean? I don't, I don't know if the, the, the Bible is true. Okay, well, I can take some time talking with you about it. What are you going to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I don't think there, anything happens to us when we die. Okay, well, you think that, but what are you going to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because he did raise from the dead. And they say, well, but I mean, how, how, do, how do we know that happened? Well, he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. And I love how Paul says, most of them remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. He's saying, look, you don't believe it? Go ask them. Go ask them, in what motive did they have for lying? The disciples, the apostles, went to their death, went to their execution because of this truth. If Jesus had died and stayed in the tomb, what do you think you would have done? Would you have kept following him? Jesus said that he was God. Jesus said that he was gonna raise himself from the dead. If it didn't happen, what did they get out of lying? Did they get money? No. Did they get comfort? No. Did they get fame? No. But they believed because Jesus appeared to them. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, to all the apostles, and last of all, as the one timely born, he appeared to me also. He appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. When we get to the end of this chapter, we talk about always abounding in the work of the Lord. And Paul didn't take the baggage of his sinful life pre-Christ with him into his ministry. But he used that as a motivation to say, I'm gonna work even harder the grace. Paul had people arrested and executed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, God forgave me. I am washed in the blood of the lambs. Jesus paid for my sins. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go tell everybody. I'm going to go tell everybody, and I'm going to stand firm in this truth, whether that it was I or they. So we preach and so you believed. Look, church at Corinth, either I told you, maybe you heard from Peter, maybe you heard from these people, but you believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is validity to the claims of the resurrection. But now we're going to shift to verses 12 through 19, where Paul explores the vanity of a resurrectionless world. The vanity of a resurrectionless world. This would be if Jesus had not raised, if we do not raise, what would that look like? And this passage has a very logical sequential structure in the way that it is written. And we're dealing with Corinth, we're dealing with, you know, the Greek philosophy and the logic. Their logic, all right, it was the contriety of their logic. It didn't make sense. The way they thought in their thought process, the people that were teaching these false things, it doesn't make sense, so Paul is going to dispel it. Now, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You call yourself a Christian, and a Christian is one who believes in the life, death, and resurrection of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, how are you tolerating this teaching? How are you even possibly buying into this? How are you perpetuating this? It doesn't make sense. It is contrary to genuine logic. But then we see the consequences of no resurrection. Look at verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. The evidence that Christ rose from the dead shows us that we too will one day rise from the dead. Moreover... We are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. Oh, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And I know that most likely you're not doubting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're not confused about what happens when you die. But we need to think, on the other hand, if there was no resurrection, if you lived this life and died and that's it, what would that mean? Well, that would mean that Jesus himself, the Son of God, had not been raised. The one who proved himself by walking on water and, you know, raising people from the dead and performing all of these miracles and casting out demons, he said he was going to do it. But that would mean that everything he said was a lie and it was not true. If there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised, verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. It is so important that we connect those two. His resurrection foreshadows our resurrection. But in addition to that, Paul's preaching is in vain. Verse 14: if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Life's Paul, uh, sorry, Paul's life and ministry and message is all vanity. He is like Chicken Little. Who ran around crying that the sky is falling, but there is no truth, the reality to it. But Christ has been raised, so there is power in truth to Paul's message. But your faith is in vain. Look, if you cra- claim Christ, but he didn't raise from the dead, that doesn't get you anywhere, does it? Your faith also is in vain. Second Timothy. Uh, One twelve. for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard which I am entrusted to him this day. Paul was willing to suffer in this life for the resurrection of Christ. That's why he endured it, because he knew who Jesus was, and what happened to him, and what he's going to do, and he was convinced, and so he carried on in ministry. But if Jesus never left that tomb, we're all in on that, guys. We're all in on that. Our faith would be in vain. But then Paul's testimony is false. Moreover, verse 15, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ. Then it's not that our message is false. We're actually... Speaking false things on behalf of God. It's like all the other false religions out there claiming things on behalf of God that are not true. But think of this: your loved ones have perished. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have they're gone. They're dead. They're not coming back. You'll never see them again. What a sad world that is. What a sad thought process that is. This life, you're that's it, then nothing, we are to be pitied. If we have hoped in Christ, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. We are fools. We're fools. We did everything because of Jesus and for Jesus, but if he's still in the tomb, man. That would be a resurrectionless world. God created this world. God owns this world. But if He made no way for there to be anything after life, that would be sad and depressing. Well, that's not a real world. So we don't have to get sad and depressed. So Paul begins to talk about the reality of a resurrection world. This is what it looks like, this is the reality that there is something after life. And for some of you, for those that are in Christ, you go, yes, it's going to be awesome. No more sin, no more pain, no more death. We get to reign and rule with Christ. I'm not going to, I'm not going to hurt. I'm not going to choose sin anymore. But for the unbeliever, man, this is scary stuff scary stuff. You're going to be cast out of the presence of God. You're going to be in hell. You're going to be in perpetual torment on fire because of your hatred of God, because of your sin. Let's see the clarity of Paul's logic. He he disproved their logic. Now he's going to talk about his. He says, "But now Christ has been raised from the dead." It happened, people. And because it happened, because it happened, I can use that truth to aid my argument. I can actually go back to those little things called facts. I can use what the world hates, truth. And I can point and say, let's start from this foundation. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It happened. It happened. So he uses that as an argument. But then he also uses the word of God to aid his argument. He's going to walk through the revealed truth of the word of God. According to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. What are the consequences of Christ's resurrection? The consequences of a resurrectionless world was sad and depressing. But the consequences of Christ's resurrection gives us hope. And gives validity to what we do. It says, first of all, the first fruits has been harvested. The first fruits has been harvested. And you're like, what are you talking about? Are we farming now? I don't know anything about farming. Verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, and you're like, woohoo, you clarified what you said in your own writing. Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, and when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is, he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Anyone confused? There's a lot of words there's a lot of words, and so we're gonna break this down a little bit. Baker writes in his commentary that Paul is not interested in making the point that Adam's sin brought death, but in showing how Adam's sin had a universal effect on all who came after. What is Jesus? Adam's sin affected all of humanity. Jesus' resurrection affects all of humanity Uh, universally. The first fruit has been harvested, but then the second fruits will be harvested. Hmm. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The first fruit of God's planning will be harvested, is what you see in 23 through 28. And I hope that this is helpful. When we look at the master's plan— And I'm going to go back and I'm going to take those same verses and I'm going to kind of show you logically how it all fits into place. All right, our timeline has an arrow on the front and the end because time is eternal. God is eternal. He has always been. But we are going to start at the cross. So the very Son of God lived the perfect life, died on the cross for our sins. And so after he dies... He raises again so verse 23 Christ the first fruits the first resurrected in God's plan here after that acts 2 begins what we call the church age so you have the resurrection of Christ we have the holy spirit we have the church age so we have Christ the first fruits and after that those who are, are Christ At his coming. Well, what is his coming? His coming is the rapture. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. So when Christ returns at the rapture, all believers that are currently alive are caught up in the clouds with him. All right? You are caught up in the clouds with him. But there there is also the resurrection of the dead that goes along with this. Then there is the seven-year tribulation where God will pour out his wrath upon the world. But in that, a number of people are going to become followers of Jesus. At the end of the seven-year tribulation is the second coming. When Jesus will come and he will defeat Satan and the Antichrist and he will throw them into the abyss and chain them for a literal thousand years. And I don't have to go over everything in the middle of the kingdom. Because that's what we're learning in big church. When the resurrected saints and the tribulation saints will reign and rule with Christ Jesus. A thousand year reign where Christ is king. Christ is king. At the end of the millennial kingdom is what you talked about today. Satan will be released from the abyss. And what's he going to do? immediately he's going to rebel against God again. You're like, don't you learn anything? But that's how hard-hearted he is. That's what his sin is. And from that, then he is going to be defeated forever. Defeated forever. Verse 24, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. So at the end of the millennial kingdom where Christ reigns, Satan deceives and leads a rebellion and it gets snuffed out like that. And then Christ hands it all over to God the Father. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Satan, but also death. And here we have, from here on, no more death. We have the new heavens and the new earth. The old earth is going to be destroyed by fire. Why not water? Because of the promise from the flood. It's going to be destroyed by fire. And we are going to live together, all believers, with Christ, with the angels, in a new heaven, and a new earth. And so when you first read what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, your head hurts a little bit. Fruit to the who, to the how. Who's on first and who's on second? Well, all I did was I plucked those exact words that we just read and I put it in a timeline. And this is what he's saying. And as a church, Corinth is here. How will this truth help them? Well, there are people in the church saying there is no resurrection. Man, there's a whole lot of resurrections going on here. A whole lot of whether it's at the rapture or whether it's people returning in the millennial kingdom, whether it's everybody in the new heavens and the earth, there's a whole lot of resurrection going on. It's amazing. And it gives us hope. And it gives us peace and comfort. And it helps us to keep going, to keep plugging away, to keep plugging away. All of this proves Paul's argument. Verse 27 again. He has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son also, also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. If Jesus isn't risen, none of that happens. But he is alive today, ruling with the Father. Well, what are the ramifications of a resurrected world? We're going to keep on looking, all right? It starts out with a couple of questions. Paul likes to do that. It's not that he doesn't know the answer to the question. He already knows the answer to the question. But he asks it so that you may understand. So that you may understand. A couple of questions. Here we are. Verse 29. Verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not at all raised, why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, this is one of the most confusing verses in all of Scripture. Do we baptize people for the dead? No. So what's going on here? What's being communicated? Some have taken this and they will say, well, look, I know Aunt Susie wasn't a believer, but I'm going to be a believer and I'm going to be baptized on behalf of Aunt Susie and that's going to get Aunt Susie who died into heaven. And that's very similar to that Catholic thought process of purgatory Catholics would teach that if you died and you weren't good enough or you didn't go to confession enough or whatever it is, then you would go to kind of this middle ground called purgatory, which is not as bad as hell, but it's not as good as heaven. And so how do you get out of purgatory? Well, you have to pay your dues and spend your time, but your family members can speed that baby up. Well, how could they do that? By giving to the Catholic church. That was the whole Martin Luther and the indulgences thing, right? The Catholic Church was like, look, we need some money. How are we going to do it? (gasps) Let's tell people that if they give indulgences, it gets their loved ones out of purgatory faster. Jesus! Then so what people do? (laughs) Sounds good. Here's some money. I want to get Uncle Joe Schmo out of purgatory. Take the money. Does that make any sense? No. In the same way, If someone was to take this and say, look, I think they were a believer, but they didn't have time to be baptized, I'm going to go take one for the team. I'm going to go get baptized again, and it's going to apply to them. Well, clearly, when you look at the rest of Scripture, when you come to a confusing passage, you use the rest of Scripture to help you understand Scripture. And that can't be what it is. The MacArthur commentary explained it like this, but said even they didn't quite understand everything that was happening in this verse. If you you could read it this way. If the dead are not raised at all, why then are people becoming believers because of the testimony of past deceased faithful believers? And they use obviously the picture of baptized in Christ through the Spirit and raised anew, that type of thing. Essentially, you could summarize this and say, why would anyone become a Christian? But y'all at Corinth, you are becoming Christians. You are becoming baptized as a profession of your faith because of other Christians that have gone before you. And if they were still dead and in the grave, Why would you do this? If David didn't go to heaven, why would you do this? If Moses didn't go, why would you do this? If your grandma that shared the gospel with you is still in the grave, why would you go? Why? why? There's another way to look at this. The church at Corinth, would we say that they always did the right thing? It could be that there are some that are practicing a baptism for the dead, just like it reads. And Paul isn't commending this. Paul is saying, Oh, look, you say there's no resurrection, right? Right. Well, why are some of you doing this? I don't know. Well, you're doing this because clearly there is a resurrection, but he's not saying that they should be doing this, all right? Now, either way you slice it, the point is the same. When we boil down the resurrection, we live as if there is a resurrection. We just do. Why is that? Because God has ingrained a knowledge of who he is on our heart, right? Go back to Romans. But we take that knowledge and do what? We suppress it. Why, why is there a reincarnation with Hinduism? Uh, why is there Allah in Muslim in, in heaven and things like that? Why do the Vikings believe in the Valhalla and stuff like that? Why? Because I believe that is one of the things that God naturally ingrained on our heart is that there is life after death. And even though we haven't seen someone with our own eyes come back from the dead, we are so convinced. And he is simply pointing out to them, look, you live and do things like there's a resurrection. So don't go denying it now. Don't go denying it now. He then asked the question, why are we also in danger every hour? Talking about Paul and the apostles. So you know what happened to Paul, right? Everyone loved him and accepted him and gave him presents. The Jews gave him big fluffy pillows and the the Romans high-fived him. Why did everyone want to kill Paul? Because he preached the gospel. That's why. But why? What's so wrong with it? Satan doesn't want the gospel preached. So what does he do? He stirs up opposition to snuff it out. And you think of your life, right? When's the last time you shared the gospel with someone? Do you know unbelievers? Do you know people that need Jesus? Have you talked to them about their sin and their their need of a Savior? Well, why not? Well, it could be you're lazy. It could be you're selfish. But a lot of times we're afraid. Why? Why? What if they reject me? What if they get mad at me? What if they make fun of me? Guys, you are playing in the devil's hands. And the devil ain't that smart. But you're playing into his hands. We think of what's the negative outcome when I share with that person instead of thinking, what if they believe? That'd be awesome. It's worth it, isn't it? And so the devil tried to whip and shipwreck and beat Paul have him stoned almost to death to get him to stop. Why? Because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. Because the message is true, the, me- the message is real. Look at verse 30. Read all of it, verse 30 through 32. Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts, and that's, he wasn't actually like in the arena fighting like tigers and lions and bears, oh my. That's what he called the the people that were opposed to him. What does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. Paul's saying, look, guys, I, I saw the resurrected Lord. I used to be fighting against him. And I had it all. I had power. I had prestige. I had fame. I had money. Everyone thought that I was the cat's meow. I had it, everything. I had everything. But then Jesus really appeared to me. And it blinded my eyes, but it opened me to his truth. And now here I am. I'm putting my neck on the line every single day for Jesus. And yeah, people are coming to know the Lord, but other people are whipping me and throwing me in prison. And if it wasn't real, man, I should just go live it up in the lap of luxury. But it's real. It's real. The same thing with the other. It makes no sense. If Jesus died and did not raise again, it makes no sense that all of the apostles were martyred, except for John who was banished in prison. It doesn't make any sense. They had nothing to gain. It profits the kingdom, and that's why we do it. And so he asks these questions to get them thinking, to prick you know, their heart. But then he gives a couple of commands. And this is where we're like, okay, good. Because this whole time you've been believing in the resurrection. Okay? But now, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? And there's two very clear commands. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And I know this is the verse that people, you know, the parents use to get their kids not to hang out with kids that vape or whatever it is or something like that. Oh, those bad company, corrupt good morals. Which is true because when you do hang out with people and let's say that they cuss a lot, okay, what does that make you do? It either offends you that you're like, I can't enjoy this because, man, it just hurts my ears. It's like they're jabbing an ice pick in my head every time. Or you tend to what? You parrot it. You, you, you pick up on that and you, you say the same words and the same things slip. And there's, there's no accountability. So if you were in a relationship, a guy and a girl, and you're a believer and they're not a believer. And they don't care about purity. And you're in that relationship and they're going to keep forcing and pushing those things on you. And eventually it's going gonna, it's gonna to chip away and it's going to present the situation and you're going to give in to temptation So bad company, yes, does corrupt good morals. But this verse is talking about the resurrection. As a church, okay, if there's someone that says, I love Jesus, but I don't believe in the resurrection, that is bad company. And it's going to corrupt. It's going to corrupt. And we know from Titus that you were to reject a factious man after a first and second warning. But why? I thought in the process of church discipline, there was like three steps. A factious person who holds to false truths like this. You gotta, they got to go. We don't want the church to go to them because if the church goes to them, it gives them a platform for their false belief system. And it could sway and trick other people. So first warning, second warning, boom, you're gone. That's how it works. So if there's anyone that is teaching something different than the core values of Christianity, if they're trying to sprinkle in a workspace salvation, okay, if they're trying to deny the resurrection, those do not tolerate those people. We already know in 1 Corinthians 5 that Paul called them out for tolerating immorality. Because our world thinks it's so harsh and cruel to, to put someone out or to, to not spend time with someone. You're, who are you? They're so unloving and unaccepting. Well, the Bible's very clear. If I walk with the unwise, I am unwise. I'm going to either start to imitate them or I'm going to be around when they do something bad. Do you know how you ever think of that? some of the legal situations that you guys get in just because you were simply at the same place as someone else, in the same car as someone else. But bad company corrupts good morals. Now, how how do we get deceived? Who do you think of? What type of person do you think of that gets deceived? I I want an answer on this. And don't say like Adam or something. That'd be rude. He's right there. Okay. Yes. Gullible person. (laughs) That is gullible people. Right, I got some good gullible stories. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna share any of them. Okay, a gullible people. What's another word for gullible. Yeah, unintelligent. Right. What are you thinking? Maybe people that trust a little too easily. Who are the types of people that get deceived? Unbelievers. Yeah, they're already. They're already deceived. They're going to keep being deceived. Weaker believers. Yeah. What about lazy believers? You're not going to open up the book and do the work? You're just going to listen to that podcast? Guys, YouTube, that YouTube rabbit trail has got people. They're just watching dumb people teaching stuff and listening and going on. And the man that's gotta be true. You know, you think of like the tinfoil hat people and all the conspiracies. And then you're like, man, there are conspiracies out there. It's wild. But you gotta do the work. You gotta read the word. You gotta put in the effort. The newbie, that's the one that gets deceived. But the one who knows the word of God, the one who accurately handles the word of God, the one who is devoted, the one who is diligent, being a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, that's the one that doesn't get deceived. And so in your Christian walk, you look at things that like Bible quizzing for the nerdy kids or something like that. The scripture memory, guys, scripture memory. Those of you that have been memorizing James 1, how many times have you gone back to the, the, the pure joy, the endurance, the temptation part of it, and you're just calling those things to mind and it's helping you fight off sin? you got to put in the work. The ones who treat church casually, they get deceived. Or you only come to church for what you want. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. But then the second command is become sober-minded as you ought. Become sober-minded as you ought. And we, we get the picture, unfortunately, all too often of the drunk person the person that's inebriated, the person that can't control their own functions, the, the person that can't drive a car or can't see straight or can't remember. We're to be the opposite of that. All right, this is the, when they take the cold water and they splash it on you, and you. I'm awake, I'm awake. I'm locked in, I'm loaded. I understand what's happening. Be sober-minded as you ought. Look at all of verse 34 and stop sinning. That's pretty easy, right? For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Look, the pagan out there—I get them being tricked. I get them doing sinful things. But you're a Christian. Are you profess to be a Christian? Wake up! The time is now to do the right thing. It's never the time to sin. The time to sin is past. It's the time for righteous living now. And what does the resurrection have to do with those two things? I know whom I am believed in. I am convinced and rooted in his truth, Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And I keep that perspective in mind that my life is not my own, that he bought me and he's coming back for me. And it's so easy for me to, you know, to think about school or to think about sports or think about friends or, you know, think about getting married one day and you're thinking about all this stuff and you forget that he's coming back. He's coming back. That's awesome. And sometimes we get really sad, and we get down, and we get depressed, but we forget about heaven. And that wakes you up. That wakes you up. And it helps you endure the pain that you're going through. Become sober-minded as you are. Now, this is the section, honestly, that we're just going to skim over. It's a really large section, and i, I got to make a note and come back to it because there's some awesome stuff in here. But from verses 35 through 57, we have revealed truths about the resurrection. What does it look like? What's our body going to look like? When's it going to happen? You know, all, all of this stuff. And he starts out with resurrected bodies. And you're like, Is it, do I finally get that six-pack? I mean, are people going to be able to recognize me? There's some of those things. Yes, they could recognize Jesus. They're like, well, I thought I was going to I be better looking. Or some of you are like, yes, I can never get better looking. I think some of those things, honestly, it, it, we, we think, we take into the resurrection our mind and not the mind of God. Like when you think of, man, heaven, we sitting around singing all day. I don't even like singing now. I mean, what's, well, I don't think we're going to be singing all day. But when we are singing, you're actually going to be like, woohoo, this is amazing our perspective's gonna be changed because we're not gonna be sinful anymore, right? not gonna be sinful anymore, okay? Verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? So there are some that will not, they don't believe in cremation because they're like, look, that's gonna stink to be in heaven like being floating particles. All right? Forgetting, that what does the body do that's in the ground? It's just decaying anyways, right? Okay, but it's going to be raised anew. You will receive a new body. And that's, that's why Kim has specific instructions. And I want it on record that when I die, okay, I'm supposed to be cremated and sprinkled at 1027 East Continental. Okay, that's where it started. That's where it ends. Even though I think she said it's illegal. All right. Help her out there, all right? See if you can, you can get around that or something along those lines. But, but what does it look like? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. And so he says, look, I just want you to think, logically, we're farming again. When you take that seed and you put it in the ground, it no longer is a seed. It dies to being a seed, and then, boo, it sprouts into something different. We still think we're the seed. And while we may look the same or something like that, we are going to be, it's, it's, it's an imperishable body. Our spirit's united with an imperishable body, and it doesn't matter if you were burned or if you were mummified. I think God can find a way to figure these things out. He can do it. Verse 38, but God gives it a body just as he wished. He wished into each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. Now, he's not saying that you might come back as a fish or a bird or something like that. He's just illustrating this. He made a fish look like a fish because he wanted to. He made a cow look like a cow and do cow things because he wanted to. When it comes to your resurrected body, we don't worry or fear because it's going to look and act and respond exactly how he wanted it. And is God good at stuff? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very good. Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one and the glory of the earthly one is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for stars differ from star and glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Through Adam, death entered into the world. Through Christ and his resurrection, life entered into the world. Adam's action brought death. There was no death before that. It brought death, but Christ's action brings life. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. Well, who's the second? Jesus, right? As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly and is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. We can only think of earthly us. But God thinks beyond us. And understands beyond us. He has a heavenly us. That we are spirit and body. The body will die. The spirit will live on. But we will receive an imperishable body. But then he talks about realized victories. Those are lots of truths about the resurrected bodies. Now we have some truths about realized victories. Verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, what's he talking about? He's talking about the rapture. At that last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen death. That's what everyone's afraid of. That's what they're scared of. They don't want to die. Now, we are echoing the same. It's not like you want to go out and die, but we know what happens to us. And the world, if they hate you so much because of your stand for Christ and kill you, oh, I get to be in heaven. Revealed, realized victories and Paul concludes this chapter with an incredible verse incredible verse and i want you to remember the context with which we find it because it's not just ripped out and thrown somewhere he's talking about the resurrection and he says therefore and we understand what the therefore is therefore think of everything that just happened in chapter 15 the validity of the resurrection The realities of a resurrection world, the truths about the resurrection. Because of all of that, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The word steadfast means firmly or solidly in place. We are not whipped and swept about by every wind and wave and doctrine. We have a purpose, we have a plan, and we are locked in. We are holding on to the, the steering wheel, and we are pressing on. Steadfast. This should be us. Not scared, not frightened, not cowering, not running after sin. Steadfast. But then he says, immovable. Immovable. What a great word. And history major here. I used to think of like the, think of the American Revolution. You know how they fought? So you'd stand in a line, and you have people behind you, and I'm in a line, and you're in a line. And I'm gonna stand here, and I'm gonna shoot. That's all I got, right? I'm not hiding behind nothing. It's out in the open. Got me and my buddies. I'm just gonna stand. I'm gonna shoot at you, and you're gonna shoot at me. And I got one shot. And then after I shoot, my buddy behind me, he gets up and he shoots while I take like 30 seconds or whatever to reload so that I can stand up again and shoot. And I thought, that is the dumbest thing ever. There is no way. I don't care who my commander was. I'm like, look, there's a rock over there. I'm going to be behind the rock, okay? And when they ain't looking, I'm going to jump out and I'm going to shoot them in the back, okay? That, that's the way we roll. That's a Turner thing, all right? I'm not going to stand out in the open field and say, man, I sure hope you don't hit me. But think of this, we are in the crosshairs of Satan and the world. And God is our commander and we are immovable. It's more the picture of the Roman soldier with the gospel of the the feet. You know, he got the little spiky deals and he's got the shield and he's got the sword. And when they rush at me, look, if I turn and bolt, we're all dead. But if we all stand together shield to shield and we lock in, when they run at us, they can't even get in and we could just poke them with our sticks. I'm more for that. Give me a shield. Give me a shield. But immovable because of the resurrection and then abounding to be outstanding and prominent. First Thessalonians 4 pictures that excelling still more. Excelling still more. But not just in what I want to do, but in the work of the Lord. That's what you do. But how can I do this? I have hope. I have peace. I have comfort. I have joy. And where do I get all of those things? Because Christ is risen. He's coming back for me. I will have an imperishable body. I will live with him for eternity. And I will follow my master and do what he says. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you so much. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who died for us. I pray, Lord, that we would be steadfast, immovable, immovable, and abounding in the work of the Lord. And I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has never placed their faith in Christ, they would repent and believe and receive these wonderful blessings and commands and follow them too. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.